0: Welcome to episode 183 of the Actual Astronomy Podcast, the objects to observe in the January 2022 Night Sky Edition. I'm Chris, and joining me is Shane. We are amateur astronomers who love looking up at the night sky. And this podcast is for anyone else who likes to go out under the stars. So, in this episode, we're going to talk about uh, what you can see in the night sky this first month of 2022. And we'll talk. talk about that in a moment. But this podcast is going to be released on December 30th on our feed. However, um, we also put these out on the 365 days of astronomy. And because of our cadence with them, it won't come out until January 6th. So this sometimes will happen from time to time. So if people want, uh, they can always subscribe to our direct feed as well at Podbean. Uh, dot com you can just go and search for uh, actual astronomy uh, and and you can subscribe there in addition to being a subscriber to the 365 days of course. So Shane, what are you excited to see this month? Um, I'm kind of excited to
1: see the, uh, the the very thin crescent of Venus and hmm. how it will change from the start of the month until the end of the month. Um, I think that'll be pretty cool.
0: How will it change?
1: Well, um, so on the very first day, so January 1st, uh, okay. at sunset, Venus will be about a, a 2% illuminated. So it'll be a very, very thin crescent. That I think is. it'll, yeah, I think it'll be stunning in a telescope just to see this thin line of light. Um, it might be a little challenging to track down. You'll have to mm-hmm. know where to look in the sky, but, um, you know, I, I, I think it's quite doable. Um, but by the end of the month, so it'll actually, I think by about the 8th or 9th of January, it'll only be a 1% illuminated crescent. Um, wow. But then by the end of the month, it will have grown to 14%. So you, you know, you're going to see this uh, rapid change in in how much of Venus you can see. And, you know, from 2% to 14% will be you know, 14% is still thin, but you'll, you should notice quite a difference between the start of the month and the end. So I'm, yeah. I'm quite quite excited for that. In fact, um, I, I wonder how well binoculars would pick that up or what size of binoculars you would need for something like that. I'm not sure.
0: Like an 80, like an 80 millimeter, I think probably. Yeah. 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 Or, or like a higher power, like a really high quality, like, um, 15 by 50 might, might, might pick it up, but doesn't it come around to the mornings? Does it come around to the morning sky by the end of month? That, yeah, that
1: yeah. It transitions yeah. mid-month to uh, to a morning object.
0: Yeah, yeah. So that's so you got to kind of follow it on the uh, on the journey around uh, around our horizons. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Cool, cool. Yeah. Well, the first of the month is going to be a, a big day. Um, we have uh, the new moon. Right. Are you? Do you have any deep sky objects you're excited about for a new moon this month?
1: Um. Not at the top. I, I I would just want to get out observing, Chris. You know, we've been we've been under a shroud of cloud and now uh, some deep freeze cold. So I will take whatever I can get this month, and uh, I will enjoy it. If if we can get out to uh, you know some dark sky observing, that would be outstanding.
0: Yeah, yeah, very cool. Yeah, I, I'm I'm totally there with you. Uh, it's been exceptionally cold, and the forecast is for. Even colder, we were saying in the last podcast, we're, we're getting down into the minus 30s with the windchill and we're set to get down to the very, very low uh, minus 30s without the windchill and, and maybe even uh, approaching minus 40. Well, we're, we're forecast to be minus 37 without the windchill, I think, over the next few nights. And uh, and that will easily get pushed well into the minus 40s with uh, with any bit of breeze. But, you know, no bugs at these temperatures. You don't see. You hardly see a mosquito out there.
1: Yeah, leave the mosquito spray at home.
0: Strangely enough, strangely enough, one year I went for a hike um, ar- around this time. We were having cold temperatures and it warmed up a little, like, you know, into like the negative single digits. And uh, when I was out walking, I found a wolf spider just out, like, wander around on the snow, like out in the fields. I was blown away. Hmm. <laughs> Very strange.
1: A, re- a resilient spider.
0: Very resilient spiders out here. Yeah. So um, let's see. We're, we, we've got a, a planetary grouping or a swoosh. I'm going to call this the great swish. So we have uh, a, a planetary, uh, it's, it's not really a line, a lineup. There's no real angle to it. Um, but we have Jupiter, Saturn, Mercury, and Venus at dusk uh, on these nights. So when, you, when we go out to observe that thin crescent of Venus, well, even if we don't get that thin Venus Crescent, like maybe there's going to be clouds low on the horizon, Um, above and to the left of Venus, this is looking in the dusk in the evening sky, and um, you're looking towards the southwest, Uh, Venus will be almost right on the horizon, and just above and to the left, or to the northeast, will be Mercury, followed by Saturn, and followed by Jupiter. So it's, uh, it's going to be a pretty cool, uh, planetary lineup, although I-, I think with our conditions anyway, and with these planets getting low down, I think seeing much of the way of details, uh, will be a bit of a challenge at least for us.
1: Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's really just to say you saw it. We, we won't see any detail when it's that close to the horizon, too much atmosphere to look through.
0: Yeah. The cool part is that if it is really cold, I might just take a pop out with, uh, with my binoculars and, uh, and just go for a quick scan, and that might be all the observing I do on January first.
1: <laughs> yeah, that that's probably me too. <laughs> yeah,
0: and then on the third we have uh, some meteors peak, and so uh, so Shane, I, these are called the Quadrated meteors, and uh, but we don't have do we have we don't have a constellation that's named the Quadrant.
1: Yeah. Well, we don't anymore. Um, a long time ago there used to be, I believe. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And this meteor shower, um, is, you know, one of the better ones to see throughout the year. Like this one can, uh, reach 200 meteors per hour at its peak. Uh, so, um, this one has a lot of action around it.
0: Yeah. So the, these meteors appear to uh, come out of the sky near uh, the handle of the Big Dipper. Uh, they're actually over the line into the constellation of uh, Boots or Bootes. And uh, anyway, th- th- there was an old uh, now defunct constellation called Quandrons Morales. And this was a, a constellation that was dreamed up by a, an astronomer named Jerome of uh, in 1795. And what it was uh, showing here was uh, a wall quadrant um, that his his nephew had charted uh, the celestial sphere using, and, uh, and 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 anyway, it was between the constellations of Boots, Draco, and Ursa Major. And uh, now these contain the stars um, Beta Buddhist, and uh, and some of the other stars in Ursa Major. And I I did put a diagram here from uh, I think this is from Wikipedia or somewhere, and it kind of shows it uh, sort of very loosely. Uh, drawn out doesn't really look like a quadrant and I guess some of the stars are in Hercules even Hercules boots Ursa Major Draco kind of spans like you know sort of like the four corners <laughs> and these these stars are not bright I'm not sure how they dream this one up but uh, I kind of want to go and chase it down if, if you want um, this was depicted in Bode's uh, 1801 Uranographia star atlas and uh, um Anyhow, so it's one of those little interesting uh, constellations.
1: Yeah, yeah, it is kind of neat to the, the history of some of the of these constellations that are, are no longer recognized is is pretty interesting sometimes. Uh, you know, and, and I think a lot of people um probably have done this multiple times in their lives where you look at the stars and, and you sort of create your own lines between them and and you know, sometimes your own constellations.
0: Yeah, eventually it was trashed by the IAU in around 1920. Um, but if you want to learn more about this and other different constellations, uh, Ian Ridpath uh, has his Star Tales book online, or or it's you know he's broken it out in, into web pages, and uh, you can go to IanRidpath.com Star Tales, and uh, Quadrants is is one of them. He has tons of other constellations that uh, that he's detailed there uh, as well. But yeah, I mean you can go out, um, you know, in in the early morning hours of January third and uh, look off the handle of the big dipper and you might see uh, some meteors. I don't know if I will be out that night. I think then yeah that that's it, it's very very cold here and we're under these extreme cold warnings. So not not advisable to go running around in the uh, prairie in the middle of the night right now.
1: No no it's uh, it's a little too cold for that kind of observing.
0: Yeah. But what happens that we will probably stand a better chance of seeing is a whole pile of these, um, uh, I guess, I guess uh, pairings of the moon and planets. So starting with January 3rd's pairing of the moon and Mercury, you can actually get both them in uh, low-power telescopes um, or binoculars. Um, you just need to be able to get about a six-degree uh, field of view. Um, I think this one might be a little bit on the tough side because the moon is very, very slender. So, uh, this, this will be, I think as challenging to see Shane as your slender Venusian crescent on the first, in fact, it, it's going to rival it, I think for, uh, for, for a challenge, but, uh, the moon will be almost directly below Mercury on the third, and you'd be able to get the moon just above the horizon in your binoculars. Once you're able to see Mercury, um, this is going to be a very brief observation rate right as soon as, after the sun goes down, um, you know, sometime within that first hour after sunset. And, uh, you always have to be a little bit careful because, uh, when you're, when you're observing Mercury and Venus, uh, especially at this time, they're, they're going to be pretty close to the sun. So you have to, you have to wait until after sunset your local time. And then really um, you're going to need to wait probably another half hour or so for the sky to get sufficiently dark, to have any chance of actually uh, sweeping them up. So wait, wait till that sun is down and then uh, head out to your nearby uh, site with good horizons. And by the time you get there might stand a chance of actually being able to pick up Mercury and the moon that evening. Yeah. That
1: would be pretty neat
0: observation. Yeah. I think I set our time at 5:46 PM for being the time. when, when we will have a shot at, uh, at getting those two, but don't fear because the next night, the moon and Saturn are going to pair up. So if you miss the moon and Mercury, you can't get it, or it's too low or clouds or whatever, um, you're going to have a chance to see Saturn and the moon um, almost exactly six degrees apart for us. Anyway, it might be a little closer for for other people towards the east. Um, but you'd be able to fit these into the same low power binocular field. And although sometimes like you're not really going to see much in the way of detail, it's just really cool to be able to see another planet and our moon and to kind of track it along. So maybe there's people out there that have never seen Mercury um, before. And certainly lots of people would never see Mercury before. Um, you know, that on the third that moon is just going to be right below Mercury and that's going to be tough, but Mercury it's going to be, and getting towards its greatest um, eastern elongation. So it, it is getting fairly high and it could prompt people to get out, maybe try to track it down. You can see this beautiful line between Venus, Mercury, Saturn and, and Jupiter kind of making this uh, swish in the uh, in the evening sky. And then again, if it's cloudy or cold or whatever, the following night we have Jupiter and the Moon and they just barely squeeze into a six degree field of view. So you got this shot sort of night to night to night of the moon, uh, pairing up with Mercury, Saturn, and then Jupiter. And, uh, all after we try for that really difficult Venus crescent. Um, but, but that first week of January, it's going to be a big planetary, uh, show and you'll be able to sort of planet hop, uh, every night, including January 7th, when we have that, uh, greatest elongation East in the evening sky of Mercury. And that's about now in sort of about meaning that on a couple days or a few days on either side of the 7th, you'll have your best shot of seeing Mercury uh, in the evening sky uh, for, for 2022. And this one should be pretty good because, of course, uh, here in the northern hemisphere anyway, um, the sun is setting super early. So uh, that means that uh, and the angled planets and such that we have a good opportunity to to see Mercury. you are you going to try to get out and see Mercury uh, on or about the 7th?
1: Uh, yeah. You know, if the weather cooperates in terms like, m- m- like if, if it's clear for sure, I'll give it a try. Um, yeah. Cause that's fairly high in the sky for us actually, as far as mercury goes.
0: Yeah. I think, I think it becomes visible when it's just still almost 10 degrees up. So mm-hmm. that's uh that's a pretty good, that's a pretty good shot there at being able to, uh, at being able to see it in the evening sky, I think still around a quarter to six, is when it should become visible. Um, I, I've been out a couple times, um, kind of making a bit of a plan and have have a spot picked out. Um, still missing part of my tripod, which is now buried in a field in the snow somewhere, and I, I know exactly where it is. But it may be uh, some months before I'm able to retrieve part of my tripod. But I'm able to kind of sort of get it working and uh, and hopefully still be able to get some observations in. Um, then coming up on January eighth. Uh, to the seventeenth, so I put this in. I kind of bracketed. Probably the best night's going to be the twelfth, but Saturn and Mercury are going to be in the same binocular field um, for about a week, or maybe even a little bit more. So this will be kind of neat.
1: Yeah, yeah, um, hmm. yeah. That'll be a really interesting observation of uh, you know an extremely distant planet and one that is very close to the sun.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. So kind of a bit mind-bending when you think about it like that because mercury is yeah. the closest planet to the sun and of course uh saturn being you know uh outside of the orbit of jupiter you know and and our uh, seventh planet uh sorry eighth planet no wait sixth planet so- from from the Sun. i'm just talking about this live this isn't in the notes or anything um but it's uh it's one of those things where just because um, they're in really different parts of our solar system doesn't mean that they can't occupy a very similar area in the sky. Now, this isn't like a great conjunction or anything like that, but I actually think seeing Mercury and Saturn together in the same field of view, um, that, that's going to be pretty interesting. And I think they do get close enough. I'm going to say about four degrees, um, might be able to get them in my 32 millimeter mass CM in my four inch telescope. I think that would be, uh, pretty cool to see, but if, if not, they'll easily fit in, uh, in like my ST80 or a 60 millimeter wide field scope. Uh, so, so we'll be able to, to get those together in the same field. Pretty neat.
1: Yeah. Yeah. That'll be a really cool observation.
0: And then on kind of skipping around a little bit because that, that's sort of a, a week or so you're, you're probably best bet is sort of the night of the uh, January 8th um, peaking on the 12th, uh, is, is probably your best bet to see Saturn and Mercury in that same binocular field, but, but you have several days in, in reading like the magazines and other things I see, they're just kind of focused on the 12th, but, um, you know, I ran the software simulation and it actually is, uh, is a prolonged pairing is what I'm calling this, the prolonged pairing of Saturn and Mercury, Um, so I think if people are aware of that, it kind of gives them an opportunity to get out. It's not a, it's not a one night one shot kind of thing. They never really get that close, but they stay about that same uh, four degree distance for, for many, many nights. Yeah. Good to know. Should be good. Lunar X visible on January 9th for all of North America.
1: Well, that's, uh, you know, if anybody has not seen it, that, that's a good thing to put on your list. It's pretty cool to see it. It's uh it's a clear obscure effect. So it's not an actual, um, like it's not an actual feature of the moon. It's just a shadow play with, uh, how the sun reflects off of some high points. And, and while some low points are in shadow, um, it stands out as this bright X right along the Terminator. Um, and then if you look, um, I guess to the northern part of the moon, uh, you'll see a lunar V as well on the same mm-hmm. night.
0: Yeah, pretty cool. Um, yeah, I'm not sure if I'll, maybe I'll try to get out that night, kind of hoping that we get into maybe, maybe the weather will warm up a little bit. Like I said, like I'm good as long as it's warmer than negative 28 with or without the wind chill. I'm, I'm good. But, uh, but really once you get much colder than that, it just gets so cold so fast so that, um, you know, if it is like minus 28 here at my house with a little bit of wind, it's easily minus 35. And then if I go to the observing site, then it's minus 37 to minus 40. So it, it, it just so, so quickly gets, uh, very dangerously cold. And right now it's so cold here that when you ask Google the temperature, which I'm not going to do, cause she'll, she'll chime in here, um, but she won't even give you the windshield. Typically she does, but it's so cold. All she does is tell you to not go out, do not go outside. <laughs> so it's too dangerous. <laughs> so basically. Yeah. Uh, yeah. You usually she'll give the windshield, but uh, now she's just saying there's an extreme cold warning. So don't go out. The lunar straight. Have you ever seen the lunar straight wall? You've seen this, haven't you? Yeah. Yeah. That's another
1: uh, really neat thing to observe. Um, it's only visible at certain points in the month because you need a shadow cast from this ridge that exists on the moon and through a photograph it's kind of jagged and it's it's got some kind of bends in it but through a telescope it looks like this inky black you know straight line and it's quite large it's quite extensive and again hmm. this is another one of uh, these interesting lunar features—that is a, a bit of a clear Obscure effect in terms of you know you need the right lighting to see it. Um, this uh, this this feature is is pretty cool. So if you've not seen this one, uh, it's another one that I would highly recommend.
0: And this is going to be on January eleventh. Uh, I mean it's I'm like pausing here, I'm like January. It's hard to believe we're talking about January already, but. Um, on January 11th, yeah, this lunar street wall will be visible and it's, uh, it's a Rupus Recta. Is that what yeah. it's called? Yeah. yeah. I mean, yeah. it's a, and it's a fault line, eh?
1: Yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, it's pretty neat. It, it, and like I say, it's, it is quite long. Um, I don't know. Do you have it here? Yeah. Fault length, 110 kilometers. Wow. Um, yeah. And, and like a lot of the craters that you'll see, depending on your aperture, um, like the diameter of of some craters are twenty to thirty kilometers, so you know something that's one hundred and ten kilometers really really stands out as a large feature. Hmm.
0: Wow, that's pretty cool. So with with both the uh, with both the lunar straight wall and the lunar X, I I wonder, can you see those in binoculars or is, are these mm. telescopic features? I, I've seen them in telescopes, but I I don't think I've ever seen them in binoculars. Before. I think if if they're binocular visible, you're going to need uh, like a, like a fairly large binocular tripod-mounted kind of deal, I guess.
1: Yeah, that's a good question, Chris. Um, you know, if it's clear and I'm out observing that night, I'll try my 12 by 36s to see if I can pull it in. My guess is you'll need a little more aperture, but you never know until you try. And, and to be honest, I've never tried, so I'm, I'm not sure.
0: Yeah, I looked it up really quick, uh, like in our local Sky News magazine here in Canada. It says you can see them in uh high power binoculars so kind of just mm-hmm. just what I just said so mm-hmm. but yeah I'd be I'd be curious I'd be curious to hear if you can actually see those in uh in your because you have 12 by 36s which they're, they're not you know large in aperture but they're decent in power and you have the stabilizing feature there so I think that'd be a good uh test just just to see if if that is visible I'd be I'd be interested to know
1: yeah I'll give it a try if it's clear
0: yeah it's about 300 meters high huh don't fall yeah. off! Ah, if you visit yeah. the moon, watch out for that.
1: <laughs> yeah, may yeah, there, Maybe there's a railing there to protect you.
0: Yeah, talk about uh, one small step. Eh? <laughs> mm. Bad joke there. Okay, So I guess it's like a giant cliff then. So yeah, yeah. Maybe I'm reading. Some people say it's more of a gradual grade. Some people say it's kind of like a cliff. I guess, I guess, just like the angle of it or something makes makes it look steeper, but maybe you would tumble down more so than just, just sort of fall off into the abyss. Hmm. Interesting. Just kind of reading a little bit about it, but uh, anyway, we'll, we'll move ahead. We'll move ahead to January 12th. So January 12th, what is happening on January 12th, Shane? Well,
1: moon, our moon and um, uh, a minor is series, a minor planet or just, a it asteroid? is. Yeah. Yeah. No, okay. So a
0: minor. Yeah. It, it, it sort of has cr- transitioned right, from right. being an asteroid to a minor planet at some point in time. I think it's gone back and forth a little bit, but it, it's yeah. now seen as a minor planet.
1: Yeah. Cool. So, so Ceres is something we've been talking about for a few weeks on the podcast since I think the beginning of December, but on January 12th series uh, passes within uh, two degrees of the moon. Um, and it gets, uh, I think even closer for people that are further East than us on the planet earth. So Uh, if you haven't seen Ceres yet, this is a great opportunity to find it because the moon is a good anchor object to kind of base your observation from. Um, and, uh, if you're going to try this observation, just know that Ceres will appear stellar. It will look like a star. Um, but if you come back, you know, if you observe it early in the evening and then, uh, note its position amongst the star field and come back maybe at the end of the night or even the next day, Um, you might notice that it's shifted a little bit compared to the background stars, and um, anyway, it's a great opportunity to observe uh, a minor planet,
0: yeah. Probably even if you started early enough in the evening, um, the moon's up, uh, moons up, I think, at at sunset that night, pretty much. Um, you'd be able to probably detect that motion of Ceres over the course. And I remember that. Uh, image that Steven had sent us there back in, uh, late November, early December, and had plotted it even over the course of just, just, a, I think it was like two or three hours or something like that. And you could actually see that, that motion. And mm-hmm. when it's, when it's, when Ceres is going to be near something like the moon, now the sky is going to be rotating a bit too. So you have to kind of take that into account, but you should kind of be able to see them sort of pass one another. You'll be able to detect, uh, detect some significant motion there between the moon and Ceres moving across the sky it would be pretty cool to see. I think, yeah, for sure. January 13th, Asteroid Iris is at opposition and magnitude 7.7 7 in Gemini. So it's sort of right on that uh, Canis Minor, Gemini border border mm-hmm. region. And uh, it's coming in at magnitude 7.7. 7. So that I think that places it well within binocular range, I think even from the city, Shane.
1: Yeah, for sure. <laughs> Very accessible to a lot of, folks uh definitely need optics of some kind and same approach um observe it uh sketch its position what you think is iris sketch its position versus the background stars and then come back hours later or a night or two later um and see if it's moved
0: and one of the cool things about this and and one of the uh places that I've gone when we were laying this out is uh to try to put stuff in here um, that you and I can see quickly when it is so cold through, mm. through our equipment, and then also we've had a lot of positive uh, feedback from uh, our listeners who who have gone out and uh, and who go out and observe these uh, minor planets and, and watch them traverse the skies and sketch them and just, just observe them in general, which is, uh, which is really cool. So if it's something maybe, uh, that you as a listener haven't, uh, attempted yet, um, this, this can kind of be a new thing to try, especially in the winter. If you live somewhere, um, like us, that gets very cold and you, you need to, you know, get that astronomy fix in, you just want to do something really quick, maybe something you haven't, haven't really done before uh, stretch your observing legs a little bit, um, hunting down something like this, uh, it is a good place to start because, uh, you should be able to do it pretty, pretty quick and easy, make your observation then get out a few nights later and make it again. And, uh, even if it is like pretty cold, this is something you should be able to do, you know, in like 15 or 20 minutes max kind of thing. If that, that, that's all I can handle in these temperature chains. So, Hey, I was just wondering, are you able to put these, these images up on our show notes? Will that work? Yeah. So
1: so every month when we do the objects to observe, I put uh, I put, uh, basically everything we're talking about, including the finder charts, will be uploaded to actualastronomy.com. No membership is required. You can just go there, download it, and then you have all these references uh, if you wish to observe any of this stuff. Um, and also, if you want, you can sign up uh, just to receive notifications of when we post something new. Uh, we don't do anything with the information. It's really no. just sort of a convenience thing if if you want it. Um, we don't post show notes for every episode, but certainly this one we do.
0: Okay, very cool. Um, and thank you for doing that, Shane. Clearly, you're the one that does this, and uh, and and I appreciate it and our listeners uh, appreciate that as well. Um, and I make the uh, the finer charts up using uh, Sky Safari. And when I was looking at this, uh, there is there are some notes in Sky Safari, and uh, this one says that uh, Iris is the fourth brightest object in the asteroid belt, and it is the seventh asteroid ever discovered, identified on August 13th. And I, I looked it up. I think that was that was also a Friday. <laughs> oh, really? That's interesting. I, th- I think so. In 1847 by the Eng- English astronomer uh, J.R. Hind of uh, Hind's Variable Nebula fame. And I remember that from when we, we did our, our episode on minor planets and asteroids that you could see. And we actually uh, talked about this uh, a few months ago. Sorry, I just banged my head, uh, nose against my microphone there. So there might be a bit of a, a bop um and uh asteroid Iris is named after the Greek rainbow goddess and attendant to Hera. And so uh this is particularly fitting as Juno is the Roman version of the goddess of Hera, and Iris was first discovered following uh three Juno, the, that asteroid. Um, by less than an hour of right ascension. So, iris is regularly coming within about 0.4 astronomical units of Mars. Um, It's well-tilted at 85 degrees, and that means that nearly a whole hemisphere of the asteroid receives constant daylight or constant darkness for an entire season. So, the surface of iris thus experiences extreme temperature differences, and the asteroid is probably composed of nickel-iron metals, magnesium, and iron silicates. Iris is about 200 kilometers in diameter, so that's uh, pretty big.
1: Yeah, yeah, that's a good size for for something in the asteroid belt.
0: Yeah, pretty neat. So I think I'm going to try to I'm trying to trying to go out and take a look at these uh, these asteroids as one of my. Jobs as the uh, RASC observers calendar editor. Um, I, I, I've come to know that there's stuff that uh, that's in the observers calendar, which is stuff that I typically don't observe. So I'm trying to, uh, to to take on some of these things as my own sort of observing project because I kind of feel like I can't uh, I can't put, be putting stuff in that I've never really gone and observed as much myself. Although to be honest, I I usually do track down a couple asteroids uh, every once in a while when they're They're particularly well placed. So, um, we're we're losing Comet Leonard, but we're gaining Comet P19 Borelli. Shane, how bright is this going to get?
1: Let me. I think it's further down there somewhere. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. So right right now it's about nine and a half to ten is what one of our or what uh, Charles, one of our listeners, had indicated. I don't see where you got it in the notes here. Oh, I think
0: it's way, yeah, sorry, it's way down there. I think somehow it got, uh, it got pushed down to the bottom. It's, it's 9.5, but it's brightening. And I think it's going to get up to uh, maybe 7.9 or so. So that's going to place it well within um, the range of, uh, of binoculars.
1: Yeah. And, and the nice thing, especially for us uh, Northern hemisphere people is that, it's not on the horizon. This one is uh, is much higher up in the sky, which will make it uh, hopefully easier to observe. Because uh, the downside to Leonard was that it was so low on the horizon at sunset that it really was lost in the twilight glow. Um, you really couldn't uh, visually observe it. I don't even know if you could photograph it. But um, you, you know, Leonard was more of a morning object, um, uh, whereas this will be uh, should be easily observable in the evening as long as it's clear.
0: Yeah. And, uh, yeah, I'm I'm excited to see this one, um, because it's sitting pretty much right between Neptune and Uranus it's in, I think it's in the constellation of Cetus the whale, but it's sitting right between Cetus and, uh, and Pisces. So it's sort of right in that, in that borderland and, uh, maybe it will grow a tail. I don't know. I know, uh, I know Charles said it was uh, it was getting fairly bright. He was able to well see it at 100 power in his six inch refractor, and so I'm thinking that uh, that by middle of of next month, probably what was the date that I put on this? I put January 20th on as kind of the date that I'm picking for when it kind of should be getting to towards its best, because uh, it's going to be brightening up to that point. You know, I don't think I did put in the magnitude on here, but I did, I did look it up and it was like seven, seven or seven, nine or 7.7 7 or 7.9 by that point in time. So I think that uh, that will be well, uh, well visible uh, there, Shane. So, yeah. So, what size telescope would be best uh, used to view this and what are, what are some tips for people to, to try to uh, enable them to see Comet Brelly? Well,
1: probably, you know, any telescope will, will work. You know, I think anything 50 millimeters and up an aperture will, will work. Um, usually to sweep in a comet, having a little bit of a wider field of view is kind of nice. So I would recommend starting with some wide field eyepieces. And then once you see it, you can, uh, you know, increase the magnification, um, if, if you would like just to see how it changes. Um, but when it comes to comets, especially ones that aren't naked eye visible, um, the more aperture you have sometimes the better, especially to take in any of the faint tail that might exist or, or the uh, coma around the nucleus, uh, more aperture will reveal more detail on these things. So, um, there's, uh, I would say take as, as much telescope as you got.
0: One thing that's neat, if, if people kind of, when, when people go to, go to observe it, you're observing it just, just after, I think like about 117 years after its discovery it was discovered by Alphonse Borelli at Marseille on December 28th. 1904. So you could go out, Shane. We're gonna we have this information ahead of time. So we, we could go out here in the next few nights on Tuesday night. You could observe that on the anniversary of its discovery. That'd be cool.
1: <laughs> that would be pretty neat, actually. Yeah.
0: Yeah. So let's see. It's it's kind of come and, and gone in, as far as close approaches to, to Jupiter goes. And that's kind of um, moved its orbit a little bit. It, it had a close approach to Jupiter, several close approaches in 1817, 1853, and 1859. And, uh, and then six close approaches, uh, to earth followed by, uh, two further close approaches uh, to Jupiter. Uh, these were in and about 1936 and, and 1972. So it's kind of moved it around a little bit. And what's neat about Comet Browley is I think this was the one that the deep space one impactor, um, flew into, uh, back in 2001. Um, and it was, uh, it, it was steered towards the comet and, uh, and, and, you know, they, they, they took a look at it, uh, for a while. So, um, anyway, just, just kind of neat. Borelli seems to be broken into two pieces and about, uh, 15 degrees. So has sort of these two bowling pin, uh, type, uh, extensions to it. So anyway, yeah, pretty, pretty neat, uh, for people to take a look at. It's about eight kilometers by four kilometers. And, uh, yeah. It's, uh, it's going to be well worth uh, t- taking a peek at it as it brightens up towards the end of January, I think.
1: Hmm. Yeah. Um. Hopefully we can get out and get some observations of it.
0: Mm. Sort really of getting towards the uh, the end of the month, January 29th. We have the morning sky swoosh of the planets, which is uh, the moon, Mars, Venus uh, lined up in the dawn. And you were saying Shane that that Venus is going to show a 14% crescent by this
1: point in time, I think. Uh, Yeah, by the end of the month, it should be at 14%.
0: And then we have this pairing on that 29th of the moon, very, very thin crescent moon and Mars. And I think they're only going to be about four degrees apart in the sky. They easily fit in that sort of six degree um, field of view that I, that I set up in sky safari there. So as, as the moon rises and joins Mars and Venus in the sky, it's going to be very, very close to Mars. should be pretty cool to see.
1: Yeah. And, and one thing to add about Mars is that 2022 is the good year for Mars. So every two years it gets closer to earth and that's when we do a, a lot of Mars observing. Um, so I believe Mars reaches opposition or its closest point to us in, um, December. Of this, uh, of 2022. Mm-hmm. And, you know, if there's any uh, passionate Mars observers out there, it's really cool to start observing Mars as early as you can and then watch it grow throughout the year. And then also, you know, have a real good log of all of the detail that you can see and the evolving polar caps and all of that kind of stuff. So mm-hmm. um, I'm excited for this because this is really kicking off kind of the Mars observing season. Mm hmm.
0: Yeah, should be uh, should be pretty interesting. Yeah, I'm I'm really excited. Looking forward to another Mars opposition. Really enjoyed uh, observing it through my four inch telescope um, last October. Not this, just past October, but just over a year and, and a bit ago um, during its last uh, opposition. This one's not quite as good as that one, but it's but it's going to be a pretty decent one, I think.
1: Yeah, yeah, uh, it, it it'll be well placed in the sky for us. Um, you know uh, when. The planets are uh, visible in the winter time. They're quite high, which means we we don't have the as much atmosphere to deal with. So I'm excited for it.
0: Yeah, and uh, let's see. We have a a couple more comets that that are visible. Not super bright. We have we talked about Comet uh, Leonard, which is which is fading. I think some uh, estimates recently were a little bit brighter than fourth magnitude. I think it was about fourth magnitude when I last saw it, uh, about the middle of of December. Um, it's fading now. It's very very low. In the evening sky, some people have been lucky enough to make uh, quite a few observations of it, which is which is cool. Have comet uh, L3 Atlas, um, which is steady around uh, ninth magnitude or so. Best in the morning sky. Um, we're using I'm using data from uh, the comet observation site, uh, cobs.si, uh, that seems to be a pretty good good spot to kind of get a get an overview there. So put that in the show notes would be would be appreciated. Then we have that 67p uh Chiriyamov uh which is that uh a comet that they, I think they tried to uh, land the Rosetta on that time. Uh, and, and again, it's, uh, it's about nine and a half magnitude, but it's, but it's fading. And then we have, uh, Comet Borelli, which is, which is brightening. It's going to get about, uh, maybe as much as two magnitudes brighter than it is now. And getting up into that seventh magnitude range is kind of the magical range because that's, um, when it gets placed into, uh, into binoculars, uh, or into the visibility of, of handheld binocular range, um, for uh for backyard astronomers that's when things start to get pretty exciting is is once we uh get into seventh magnitude so but i don't think it's going to get much brighter than seventh magnitude although comets never cease to amaze and surprise eh
1: yeah that's they're they're super unpredictable you never know what uh they will do you never know how bright or or not bright they will get so uh that's part of the fun you just observe them and and see what they do
0: yeah cool well, Shane, do you have anything to else Anything else to add to this to this episode?
1: Uh, no, no, that's everything. Yeah, well,
0: thanks, Shane. And thanks, everybody, for listening. Be sure to subscribe to Actual Astronomy in your podcatching software. And uh, we're always excited to receive your observations and emails to actualastronomy at gmail.com. Thanks again, Shane. And thanks again to everybody for listening.
1: Thank you, everyone, for listening. And we hope you enjoyed the show. If you are interested in more information, would like to contact us, or if you would like to support the podcast, check out our website, actualastronomy.com.